Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. MJ, when you work that timpani in that song specifically, it feels as if the Lord himself is rumbling his own way into this place, deep calling to deep. We want to take just a moment and um, encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of Matthew. Matthew 22nd, and we're going to get there in just a few moments. But before we do, I want to take just a moment to welcome into the conversation the rest of our JCBC family who right now is in the Family Life Center worshiping just down the hallway. And um, You'll notice that we are moving our pastoral prayer in, in our service to this moment here uh, instead of just prior to the offering. I want to take an opportunity when we're all together as part of this one voice that we celebrate to offer a prayer while we are all tuned in together. The reason we do that is partly just to make sure we are all praying together at the same time on a Sunday. But there's another reason as well. You know that in our journey thus far, whenever news has been made, whenever something has happened in our community or in our nation or in our world, it's during that time that we call the pastoral prayer when we take a moment just to address it, to lift it up before the Lord, maybe even groan a little bit together. Well, earlier this week when our worship team was putting together the orders of worship for both venues, I think my remark was, yes, let's put it there and then hope that nothing happens that we have to talk about. And then Charlottesville happened. You have been watching the news just like I have and everyone has. And what word do we bring in the context of worship that helps people of faith form the mind and heart and activate the hands and feet when something so disturbing, uh, such as the display of, of just egregious racism and bigotry were on parade all through the weekend. Yesterday I wrote a little something, a post that I put out there in social media. Many of you picked up on it and shared it, and I'm grateful that you would do that. My pastor's heart believes that when we come to moments like this, it is time for the church to pray. Always praying. Praying without ceasing, right? But the spirit of my reflection yesterday kind of demonstrating where my heart was at the time and where it still is today is that, yes, it's time to pray for Charlottesville, pray for our nation, pray for our world. But lately, I've been provoked to pray in a particular way, to pray for me, to pray for us. 
Because when you and I, truthfully, when we see something as, as uh, disturbing, as disgusting, as such an overt display of racism and bigotry and, and xenophobia, we, we, of course, want to pray for peace. And yes, we, of course, point to it. And, and we say that that's just, just it's, it's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then when all the hashtags begin and the posts and the tweets and the little clips get seen, here's what happens, because it happens every other month, it seems. We blur into this kind of elastic consciousness where it just fades into the very next thing that has happened for which we should be ashamed, and we just move on. It becomes this tragic meme, nothing more. And while you and I, as the body of the living Christ, must pray for peace and for uh, stability and for justice in places like Charlottesville, what I want to pray about is disturbance in me. That while we pray for places that are in upheaval to be stabilized and filled with the presence of the peace that comes from Christ, I want you and me to be disturbed long enough for us to ask ourselves some hard questions. We can look at the whole Jerry Springer-ish nature of what we see on the news and assume that that is completely other people. But the tradition of the Old Testament, the tradition of the Old Testament prophet was to never simply point at what is wrong in the rest of the world, but rather point to it, call it the evil that it is, and then turn the finger back on the self and ask, is there any vestige of that kind of hate in me? Are there any echoes of racism, sexism, xenophobia lodged within the corners of my own heart? And on the surface, if you're like me, we would typically say, well, of course not. There's no, of course. Everybody's welcome at my table. But truthfully, this is the job that only God is qualified to do, to look at our heart and to reveal to us, is there some place where we must confess our own contribution to the brokenness of the world? And that's what I want to do. I want us to take just a few moments to pray. And to hold our collective heart out before the only one who can truly see it as it is. And ask God to transform it. Let's pray together. God, in this moment we do pause long enough to confess to you that every time we gather in this place. Every time your worshipers come to this place. We come with the assumption that an encounter with you can change anything in us. And while we skip through the day week to week assuming where we are whole and where we are broken, where we do well and where we fail, it is to you that we pray right now. That you would Show us our own heart. 
and transform it with your reconciling love so completely and thoroughly, Lord, even in this hour of worship, that when we leave this place, the natural thing for any of us to do is to be your very presence to everyone around, regardless how similar or how different we look, think, feel, or believe. Change us now. And we will follow you. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. So in your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Perhaps a fitting text chosen even before the events of this weekend. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34, listen to these words. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The reading of the sacred word. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Amen. So a long time ago, there was a priest. And at night, the priest would go to the church to offer prayers. And in the evening prayers, he noticed as he would go into the church, there was this irritating cat who everywhere he went, the cat followed him, brushed up against his leg, knocked over the candles on the altar, messed up the, the utensils in the kitchen, ate the bread, and drank the wine. This was a curious cat. But every night that he gathered for evening prayer, this cat would distract him and disturb him, so he discerned what he must decide to do, which was to tie this cat to a nearby tree. Not a bad fate for most cats. There must be too many cat people in the room today. <laughs> he tied the cat to a tree so that he could commit to what he had come to do, evening prayers. And it worked. It worked for several days. It worked for several weeks. In fact, for years then, every night on the way into the church, this was their routine. This was their tradition. It developed over many years. The priest would show up, tie the cat to the tree, commence with evening prayers, and then go home. Many years later, the priest became an old man. And he became sick, and he died. But the disciples of that priest had been watching how to conduct evening prayers for many years now, so they knew what they had to do. They began to conduct evening prayers, so they tied up the same cat to the same tree. 
and they conducted evening prayers. Well, this went on for several years, and it went very well. The trouble was the cat grew old, and the cat died. So they were faced with a dilemma, and the disciples decided what they must do. They went out and found another cat in order to tie the cat to the tree so that they could have evening prayers. Yeah. Which seemed to work for the disciples. Seven generations passed. Seven generations of disciples. Seven generations of cats. And one day, many, many years later, the tree died. So the disciples knew what they had to do. They planted a new tree in order to find a new cat to tie to the tree so that they could have evening prayers. This is just the way we do things. And it worked for a long time. And many, many years later, learned scholars wrote long treaties, long volumes of theological works describing this this theological significance of why you tie a cat to a tree during evening prayers. And schools of thought began to develop. One school of thought began to espouse the belief that the only way to do this is for the cat to be a male cat. Other schools of thought believed, no, the cat has to be a female cat. There were some schools of thought who taught that the only way to tie the cat to the tree in evening prayer was with a leather strap. But there was a whole other denomination who was of the belief that the only true way to tie a cat to the tree during evening prayers was with a braided rope. And around and around they went. It is possible for the church of this current era to spend the better part of its energies, its attention, its affection, focusing on only the surface-level peripheral issues that at the end of the day matter so very little. It is possible for us to be fixed with our attention upon the cat tied to the tree that we never get around to the evening prayer. And of all the ways that we do that with faith, of all the ways that we put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, of all the ways that we do that, we do that especially when it comes to worship. In worship, we are now in this series, a brand new series, now that we are beginning our two-venue worship experience, we're in a series called Magnificent Obsession. Magnificent obsession in which we are looking closely at the character and the nature of true, authentic Christian worship. The fact of the matter is, it's easy for churches all over to focus on, well, the venue, uh, the style, the musical preference, or any number of cats tied to trees and never get down to the heart of why We worship. Now, listen, we master the conversation about how, when, where, what, and what time, and what do we dress like. But do we ever get to the point where we actually uncover why? Why? When the fact of the matter is, when it comes to worship, it's not about a venue 
It's not about a musical taste or a style when it comes to worship. It is about how you choose to exist in this world. Worship at the very heart of it is how you choose to exist in this world. It means, and you might even think of it this way, in this time when we're talking about styles of worship, I want, I want to give you an answer in case you're asked the question. If someone asks you the question, hey, at Johns Creek, what kind of worship style do you have? Here is the answer I want you to give. Our style of worship at Johns Creek Baptist is lifestyle. Lifestyle. Because at the heart of worship, it's about waking up every day and recognizing I've been given this life and I will choose this day to surrender it back to the one who gave it to me in the first place. And everything I do this day and everything I say this day, everything that I think and feel this way this day will somehow be a demonstration of who I really worship. And what is of utmost supreme importance to me? At the end of the day, when it comes to worship, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And that gets played out in a thousand different ways every day. Who you worship, what you worship, why you worship gets played out at your kitchen table when you are having a, a conversation with your spouse, even an argument with your spouse. What you worship, who you worship, gets played out in rush hour traffic and how you respond to the guy who cut you off. How you worship and who you worship all gets played out in how you treat the server who got your meal wrong at the restaurant. Because in your life, you will demonstrate what it is that you think is of utmost importance and of supreme value. And it has so very little to what, with what we do here on, on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. But it has everything to do with what happens when we walk out of these doors and we drive off of these parking lots and we live in a world where the world around us is looking to see what is it that we value most. Where is it that we've placed our hearts and our minds greatest energies that will reveal who it is we worship so to get us going this is the conversation i want to have for the next three weeks to get us moving down this conversation about what it means to worship to keep the conversation away from the cat tied to the tree i want us to offer a few definitions and these are not new we've talked about these before but i think it's important to have these definitions out in front of us so that we are able to remember why we do what we do one of the earliest and, and simplest definitions of worship it really comes from how you break down the word the etymology of the word worship comes from two old english words that are kind of jammed together worth sip Worthship. To worship is to ascribe worth or value or significance to something. When you ascribe worth or value, you're pointing to something and saying, This thing is something. It's beautiful, it's right, it's great, it's awesome. To worship simply at the very rudimental level, at the very etymological level, simply means to ascribe worth to something. 
And before we move any further past into any other definitions about what it means to worship, you got to believe this, that worship is something that you were created to do. Worship is how you are made. It's how you are designed. There is something in you that whether you want to or not will ache to attach itself to something else. You have been created with the capacity to recognize beauty and grace and loveliness to where you then somehow begin to ascribe to that source all of your affection and all of your attention. This is why we fall in love. (laughs) This is why when we meet the one who is the one, our hearts begin to race. Palms begin to sweat. Still happens for Laura when I come home from work. (laughs) This is why when you go to the Grand Canyon, And you park the car and you walk past that hedgerow to the rim for the first time and you see that vista, you literally cannot breathe right. Because you're overwhelmed by the majesty of this sight. You ascribe worth, significance, beauty, loveliness to a thing that you are seeing. And it's just a hole in the ground, right? Made by billions of years of erosion. But your soul knows something different. Something in you aches to cling to that which is beautiful and right and lovely and good. You are a worshiper. You know how to ascribe value to something that has value. The question is, what is it that has most value to you? Well, if you ask Bruce Leafblad, he says, look, yes, we're all made that way, but for a person of faith, the only appropriate place for that kind of affection to land is in the Lord our God. And he defines worship this way. He says, worship is communion with God in which believers, by grace, center their mind's attention and their heart's affection on the Lord humbly glorifying God in response to his greatness and his word. I love that phrase. Worship means centering your mind's attention and your heart's affection in one particular location upon the Lord. Glorifying him, ascribing to him glory and and worth and value and esteem, respect, call it whatever you want, but ascribing to him all of your mind's attention and heart's affection because in him you recognize a greatness like you have never recognized in anything else. So worship has something to do with recognizing. That's why I love what Rob Bell says about worship. Rob Bell says that worship is simply this. Our growing awareness of the presence of God in all of life. That means you are so in tune with your pursuit of this great and lovely God that you begin to see evidences of that God's heart in every place where you turn. That means you begin to see a reflection of God's own glory in every person that you see, in every moment that you share, every experience that you have, whether it is filled with joy or pain. 
you are able to begin to recognize the presence of God, and that is the beginning of worship. You are ascribing to this existence an awareness that God is in it. But maybe the simplest definition is one that I ran across from Louis Giglio. Louis has maybe the simplest one, and that it can help us today, which is worship is our response to the thing we value most. It's our response to the thing that we value most. The question is, what do we value most? Can I let that question simply hang out in front of you and let your worshipful imagination kind of do what it does? Let the Spirit of God who is in us and among us do with you and with that question what it may. What do you value the most? So those are some definitions, and definitions are great. Definitions get you started, but definitions have limits. See, Definitions, well, they're kind of academic. Do you know what helps me most when I think about what is it that we're up to when we worship? When I try to imagine what it is that we're up to in the, in the act of worship, it's not really a definition that helps me. It's an image, a picture in my mind of our ancient sisters and brothers in the Hebrew faith bowing, bowing down, prostrate before the one they consider great. Not only do Jewish ancestors in our faith demonstrate that throughout the ages, but even other religions this day still incorporate a bowing in their worship. Think about what bowing does for a moment. Now, you and I don't do a lot of bowing in here, except maybe to bow our head, if possible. But bowing is a demonstration physically of something that's going on in the heart. When you bow, you come to a place where you stop and you recognize you are confronted by something so great, so beautiful, so lovely, so so amazing that you, you bend before it. You submit before it. You relinquish your posture to a posture of humility before it. In many ways, it's, a, it's kind of an external demonstration of an internal attitude. Because when you confront the holy, living, and loving God, there is nothing like it. And in so doing and so confronting, that God confronts you. And you recognize the only posture is to bend the knee and bow the body. And is that not what worship is? When we come in contact with the one who loves us most and knows us best, there's something that happens in us. We stop. We stop. Worship has the capacity to stop the motion of our lives and actually cause us to contort, to bend, to change, to morph until we are no longer the same. And the fact is, you and I, well, we, we bow all the time. We're made to bow. We're made to worship. But the truth is, you and I worship all the time and sometimes maybe don't even know it. You and I will bend in humility, in subjection to a thousand gods every week. 
We bend before the very thing that we think is deserving of our mind's attention and heart's affection. The question that I have for you is before what do you bow in humility? Now, here are some ways to figure out the answer to that question. You could go home and ask your spouse. You could ask your kids. You could ask those who know you best and love you most. Where do you think I bow? Where do you think I bend? Where is it that you think I place my greatest attention and my deepest affection? And the answer they give you may give you a clue as to who your real God is. But if they're not home and they can't give you that answer, let me give you a tip. There are two truth-tellers that every one of us have. Two truth-tellers. We all have them. If you want to know where it is that your life demonstrates who your God is, if you want to know where it is that you bend most frequently in worship and adoration, where it is that you contort your life because you think this thing is worth your contortion, I can tell you there are two truth-tellers. Your calendar and your checkbook. If you want to know what is in your life that has the supreme value It is where you spend your time and where you spend your money. Which means that you and I can bow, bend, we can revel before, we can place mind's attention and heart's affection on any number of false or lesser gods. But our confession of faith is that we believe there is only one worthy throne. Our confession of faith is that we believe there is only one worthy before whom every knee should bend and every tongue confess. And we believe that that is the Lord our God. We hear in the the book of Colossians, a letter to the Colossians, the first chapter of these words, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The truth, beloved, is that you were not just made to worship, but you were made to worship God. And in many ways, you and I will both remain hungry until we eat of that bread. We will remain thirsty until we drink deeply of that cup because you were not only made by God or through God but you were made for God everyone and everything was created through him and for him there is a sense of restlessness until we learn somehow to land our minds attention and hearts affection in a daily way before the Lord our God St. Augustine put it this way he said My heart is restless, O Lord, until it finds its rest in Thee. And I don't know if you know that experience. I don't know if you know what it's like to go through a a, a majority of life restless or feeling lost, feeling isolated, feeling as if everything you do is one big fat fail. Everything you do to pour your mind's attention or your heart's affection into something or some person or some, some uh, job or some endeavor or project, no matter what, what you do, I don't know if you know the experience of feeling like it always comes up empty. 
and you still remain restless, still remain thirsty and hungry, if anybody knows what that feels like, the woman at the well knows. The woman whose story we read about in the fourth chapter of John, in her, in her life she had been through a great many disappointments. And we come upon her story in John 4, and we're told that she's going to this well to draw up water in the middle of the day. It's noon, which already from the beginning of that story triggers something in our awareness that something's gone wrong. Women don't go at noon in Samaria to the, to the well of Jacob. They go early in the morning. It's where they catch up on the news. It's where they do their social bonding. It's where they, they talk. It's where they do the thing. But she doesn't go with them. She goes alone. We recognize that something already introduces her as a kind of restless person. And Jesus shows up to, to get a drink. Can I have some of the water there? Give me, give me a drink. I'm thirsty. She says to him, but sir, you have no bucket and, and, and the well is deep. And then he does what Jesus does. He turns the conversation on his ear. Oh, if you only knew who's talking to you. You, well, would let me give you a drink and you would never go thirsty again. And about that time, something stirs within her. Her heart begins to race and her palms to get a little bit sweaty because we also know that the well of Jacob is not only where you went to get water, it's also where single women went to flirt with single men. Oh? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, you don't have a bucket. And, and uh, tell me about this well that never runs dry. And Jesus, seeing where she's going, says, I tell you what, go and get your husband and come back and we'll all talk about it. And it reveals a depth, a depth of injury and pain in her because she says, uh, no, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, of course you don't because the man you're with now is not your husband. You've had five husbands and you keep trying and here you are talking to me about buckets and wells. And he begins to see in her that her life has been one disappointment after the next. She has been lowering the bucket of her mind's attention and heart's affection into the well of every man's promise, dropping that bucket into the well of, of the next man's good looks, the next man's wealth. And every time she's been pulling it up and it's been empty, She's pouring out the very best part of who she is because she thinks that perhaps this next one is of supreme value. And if I give everything to this relationship, I will find rest from my journey. And Jesus sees it and calls her on it. And she gets a little nervous and she begins to change the subject. I don't know if you know this story, but she changes the subject. She gets a little nervous and says, okay, enough. Um, Let's talk about theology. She says, uh, teacher, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, our ancestors say that we have to worship here in Samaria on Mount Gerizim, and your ancestors say the only appropriate place to worship is on this mountain in Jerusalem. Which is it? And Jesus says, come on. Uh, do you want to talk about cats tied to trees next? Because everything we're talking about here has to do with worship. Sister, we're already talking about worship how many wells will you drop? How many buckets? 
in order to draw up more emptiness. And then he offers these words from John 4. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So here's the marvelous good news. The very thing that you're searching for, it turns out that he's searching for you as well. The Father seeks those who are willing to place their minds, attention, and hearts, affection upon him and be completely sold out before him. Not in every well that promises water and comes up dry. Maybe this this is why Later in Matthew's gospel, when he's, when he's asked by a lawyer, hey, what's the greatest commandment of all? Jesus says, the greatest commandment of all is this. Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, this is the first century way of talking about everything in your existence, your mind, your heart, your soul, your sense of self, everything that makes up who you are. It's as if Jesus is saying, relinquish, bend, bow in your mind. Relinquish, bend, bow in your soul, in your heart. Everything you think, everything you feel, everything you do before the one and only one worthy of your worship. Now, beloved, when we do this, it changes the game. Now, unless you come to that place where you recognize that you have yielded your life before God on a daily basis, then nothing we do here at 11 o'clock on Sundays matters. Unless you come to a place where you have yielded to Christ in your mind, you have humbled yourself before Christ in your heart, and you have relinquished the control of your life and your soul. The nothing we do here on Sunday at 11 o'clock matters at all. It's just words. It's just music. But when you do, when you confront the God who made you and who put within you a divine homing beacon to draw you home, when you bend before that throne, well, there can be No campus big enough to hold the worship that would come from the hearts and minds of people. Can I ask you one final question? In what realm of you have you yet to bend in humility before God? Perhaps today is an opportunity to lay it all down, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's pray. Most loving God, we we pause here for just long enough to acknowledge there may be a thousand thrones before which we bow on a regular basis. There may be many gods that we bend the knee to and we don't think of them that way we don't call them that but they are the gods of our ego of our pursuits 
our hunger and thirst for fame, for wealth, for success, for more, for much. And yet we recognize that our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in you. Help somebody this day to recognize there is a place in you where we can find our rest. Show us what it looks like, feels like, sounds like to truly worship you in spirit and in truth every moment and every, every breath of our lives. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.